Hello and welcome to the Hot House Transplants podcast. I am your host, Matt Duffy. Thank you so much for joining me today. We are talking with the men and women who contributed to the Hot House Transplants book released back in 1997, over 25 years ago. You can see our website, hothousetransplants.com. That's where all the episodes are going to be released, the past ones, the future ones. I would encourage you, if you haven't, go back and listen to the first couple of episodes of the podcast. It's going to tell you a lot about why we're doing the podcast, and especially it's going to tell you about what the original Hot House Transplants book was about and why we did it in the first place. I hope you enjoy this episode, and thank you so much again for listening. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate you being willing to continue on with your story. I, it was neat because listening to the to the first one just straight through, I don't know, I, I found it just fascinating. Um, so it made me more excited to continue on with what you were talking about. So I, okay. I appreciate it. Where where you basically left off is we had just sort of gotten to this place of discussing you in college and moving on sort of with your career. And you had just started to talk about that you, I think you got married at 30, 30 something. Oh yeah. 30, okay. it must've been 34 or something. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. And and you, but we, we, we sort of broke at this point of you explaining in your life where you met your now wife and, and that whole sort of time period on sort of where we stopped. So if, you, yeah. if you're willing, I would love for you just to sort of pick up with maybe it would have been your mid twenties. Um, I don't oh, know that yeah. we really, we, we really caught much of what was going on in your mid twenties. If you want to give us maybe that snapshot up to meeting your wife and then we can move on from there. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe, you know, I think the original project titled hothouse transplants, you know, the idea of like, you, you know, you grow, you try to grow something in a hothouse and then you, it moves other places. Well, that I think was part of my life in my twenties. I had a sense I, I was, you know, going to be in journalism after college. I was moving to Indiana and to California for a year and then Washington DC and then New York city and then to Pittsburgh, you know, then back to New York city. And so it was these kind of moves going on literally, you know, being transplanted. And so then I think it's worth thinking about for the church or for families of, well, how do we prepare our kids for that kind of a life? I mean, I saw a study that came out and showed, contrary to what we might think, the average American lives like 18 minutes from mom or dad or from mom typically. (laughs) And so, you know, there still is a, is an element of a lot of us like to be close to family in some way, but I do think, yeah. you know, but, but, but it is true that, you know, people who sometimes just, you know, especially certain fields um, and certain, you know, ambitious, you know, people in certain fields like do have to move and you move around. And so I think the question comes back to for how does the church, how do, how do families, you know, prepare uh, you know, young people. And I, and I think the default, and it is just opining, then I can go back to my story, but I, I think it kind of tees up what I will tell you from my story, perhaps. I think the default sometimes I experienced growing up in the Midwest and homeschool circles and in churches was uh, a default mode of, okay, we want our kids to go do big things. We want our kids to be, you know, uh, prepare them for that. But, but I think one, 
in in some ways spiritually and practically like they're not preparing people for that um right. and the default is actually preparing people to like you know get married as quick as you can as young as you can and stay close and don't don't transplant so that's kind of interesting as a dynamic so you know i i did the i guess i did the opposite of that because i went to college contrary to what bill gothard was teaching um you know ended up in sort of my dream field and it would have ended up being in journalism and ended up working for some of the biggest brands and most important influential publications like uh the wall street journal and the associated press and the washington post and the and so um so in, in one sense i think socially and you know in one and i see a lot of i teach at an institution we have i think 13 or 15 percent of our students are homeschooled young people and a lot of them are just i i do think that they uh, a lot of homeschoolers get a good out of the box thinking and I, I you know and a lot of a great work ethic there's a lot of really strong qualities but i think there's also sometimes missing social elements and i know homeschoolers we go on and on about well we don't like it when people say that it's not true but I, I do believe it is, there is a little bit of true of like, you know, um, of, of separatism, of isolation and its impact on one's, you know, sociability in, in the wor world and the workplace. And, and I think the young people then are kind of forced into a new hothouse, which is trying to figure out uh, what to do <laughs> from the old hothouse. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I feel fortunate that throughout, I think, my 20s and 30s, while I had to I think encounter a lot of the things most people encounter in junior high and high school for the first time. Mm, yeah. I do think that, you know, through all those, those, those kinds of social scenarios and all, I, I, at least I had still a calling to Christ and to faith um, as, as the North star, the guiding, you know, the guiding thing. Whereas I, what saddens me is that I, you know, I count, I encounter some homeschool people or, or people raised in the church that, like me maybe weren't fully prepared for all those dynamics and they don't their faith doesn't survive and sometimes it you know that saddens me but also uh beyond that if if their well-being as a person as a human you know sometimes doesn't survive either and that that troubles me you know so i mean i think you're you're inter interested in my story so uh you know i think that's kind of the summary i think from a career standpoint, you know, I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed uh, moving around. I loved the work I was able to do traveling. I loved, you know, the reporting and writing the feature stories, the connecting the dots and the economy. And it was a very, very fun, all, all wonderful stuff. Um, I think, uh, you know, I'm just trying to think what's helpful to who might listen to this podcast. And I think, for example, you know, the Bill Gothard cult, I'll call it a cult. I, we have to be careful, I guess, what we call cults. I, I think it was a, <laughs> I don't know, the, the Bill Gothard program that I think had some cult-like cult qualities. <laughs> um, maybe a more more accurate way to put it and kinder way to put it. You know, they had certain things. They they would talk a lot about like rock music was a big no-no, anything with a, like a certain kind of beat, a 2-4 or something, you know, or not a 2-4. I don't know if it was a 1-3 or whatever, you know, but, you know, um, even even there was wisdom booklets. I remember these literatures that Bill Gothard would put out that even said it came from African drums and stuff like, wow, you know, I mean, there's um, there's a lot of really peculiar things that were taught there. But I think, you know, so I in one sense, positive side, I listened to classical music and read a set of encyclopedias. Didn't, you know, read them that carefully, but 
those are part of my homeschool education. But, you know, the classical music thing was great because yeah. I had a semblance of familiarity uh, with classical music. I think being familiar with the Bible is very helpful to anybody in literature courses and in life. Um, but, I, you know, it was interesting in my 20s, one of the things when that I felt was healing, strangely, was I'm a Gen X. I'm a late stage Gen Xer. And I remember trying to figure out what do I... You know, what are my hobbies? Where do I fit in? I mean, it's like uh, in, in where, you know, you get these different types in high school, you know, that we homeschoolers kind of avoid. The homeschoolers are kind of their own type or tribe typically with our own, each person with their own hobbies, but they're kind of a different breed. But, you know, you get in the real world and there still are these sort of high schoolish types of like the preppies and the people into this, into that. And like, where do you fit? Where do you belong outside of, you know, the church? And it was kind of interesting to me that when I got to New York City after moving around the country, working in different jobs in my 20s, you know, the, uh, of course, the Redeemer Presbyterian Church was a real good home for me and a lot of people in their 20s. Um, There's a lot of interesting community. And um, the, in, the, in New York City, we have five boroughs. Of course, the one most people know of and see on TV and stuff is Manhattan. And so Tim Keller's original churches were there in Manhattan. And, and for, so I, I, you know, I went to that church, got along, but everybody there was kind of more of the banker type, the preppy type or whatnot. And for me, it was interesting in my 20s. I ended up moving to Brooklyn. Brooklyn was at that time, early 2000s, was more of this kind of hipster paradise Mm -hmm. in Williamsburg, um, where I lived in Williamsburg. And it was like, I mean, okay, from a fashion standpoint, everybody's wearing like trucker hats and like, you know, drinking PBR beer and indie rock was this big thing. You know, Sufjan Stevens actually lived with some friends of mine from church and I don't know him well. I've, you know, been in the same room with him a few times at parties or whatnot, I guess. But like that was the kind of milieu there in Brooklyn, sort of the young sort of hipster Christian subculture within the hipster subculture. And I actually really, uh, uh, you know, one can say there's not, not everything's great about that. There, it can become its own materialism and all that stuff and hedonism. But like, but I think there was a lot of soul and there was a lot of meaning in there and there's a lot of healing. And I found there was a lot of young people, Gen Xers from the so-called slacker generation in the 90s. And the kind of music that we were in live music we were into and the conversations like going to the I went to a bar every Tuesday night with a group of buddies some of them, I think, homeschooled Christian missionary kids and stuff and all working in New York and in Brooklyn. Every Tuesday night, we'd meet at the same bar and just talk, just dudes, no no girlfriends allowed. And and just, um, you know, that kind of community, that that's the kind of thing that was very important, very special. And, you know, and I think it was sort of, yeah, we were into like, you know, bicycling. And uh, and then the, I found the same kind of community when I went moved to Pittsburgh in my 20s. That took me almost kind of to the end of my 20s till I moved back to New York. And I found sort of thoughtful Christians who, you know, were, were reading typical Gen X. We read a lot of books, you know, and we liked to talk, like to, you know, we, we weren't out there. We weren't bombastic, but a lot of us were, I think, kind of, you know, just doing a lot of reexamining and uh, without even saying that's what we were doing, you know, and I, I, I saw that um, this... Uh, New York Times piece this week by one of the a book about the Ginger Dung, Dug, Dugger or something, another homeschool person as a TV show, reality show, whatever, and then using this words like what's deconstructing versus disentangling. And I, I don't know what that is, but I think 
or the differences between all of it. But I do think that's an important process that every every person goes through in their 20s, uh, for sure. And 30s sometimes too but and I think homes you know for I think for home we parents it's hard for us to let our kids go through it but I think it's important and even even to allow it and let it happen to even nurture it you know in in someone's teens and 20s and 30s I think it's something you know but 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 I I don't know that all so I'm sure some homeschool parents get that um but I think some don't and I think some create a scenario where it's like you know this is the way we do it as parents and if you don't do it then you're out you know and it's more of a cutting off um and and, and so yeah that's just an interesting dynamic how do you create you know bridges and um and, and i think you know the homeschool community has grown as i understand it during the pandemic and for good reasons i mean the a lot of schools were not functioning properly uh, around the country and 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 there's a lot of school districts that are probably not not great for families of all types and so choice in my view choice is good i don't homeschool yeah. my kids and don't plan to but i love the fact that there's choice for those who do and there's private schools and many options and i think the healthiest thing for for parents and you know in that sort of whether you're going to Christian schools, public schools, or, or homeschools, just to really the more time we spend and think about this pro uh, the period of of parenting people between age, uh, you know, I don't know, fifteen to to, to twenty five, which is that letting go process, or twelve even to to thirty or something. I don't know that we we deal enough of of with that, and it, that to me seems to be crucial when we look at trends and demographics on religion in America right now, where we see, we know what people that age encounter on TikTok and YouTube and all these other places and schools and everything. And and so much of our focus had the, at least the, I think the Christian community, there's so much of the, or the homeschool community, so much of the focus was the school. Now it's like all encompassing from all these other forces in terms of messaging. And so it just seems to me the, uh, uh, you know, more thought conversation of, 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 uh, of you know, of, of that of twelve to to thirty, frankly, and we look at the the trends right now, just show that uh, more people are leaving the faith, leaving Christianity, and probably other right. faiths, moving into that nuns, nons, you know, agnostics, whatever um, categories. My brain is sort of swirling because there's so many things you said that uh, I think are very true, um, and 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 very important. One of the big things was the way you were talking about your 20s getting together with these other people and finding those areas of community and that seems like one of the things that people have a very difficult time doing finding authentic community where they can actually ask the questions whether they realize they're they're asking them or not but a place that they feel is safe enough where they can say things to people invite a response and then in the process, think through, process through all of these different things that have been going on the side of our hearts or inside of our minds that we grew up with. And I do, I do feel like a lot of people in their 20s don't do that, either because they're afraid to, or it's hard to find relationships that you can be open and honest about those things and invite that feedback and then deal with people's thoughts and input in a way. Um, that's really neat that you got that. 
that you were able to in those circumstances. To me, that's sort of a lifeline when, when we move around and we're in those we're in those areas that we're away from our families to have a people that you can gather with and and just talk. It, I have found as I get older, the more I want that, the more I want those kinds of people in my life that you can you can think through life together and talk through it honestly. That's that's really incredible stuff to have. I think. Yeah, yeah, fr- you know, the, yeah, the importance of friendships, you know, and that, that's I, I think it's true in you know big families too. Like, how do you get break out of the um, you know forced Christmases or for, you know so some of that stuff's nice to do as a family, but how how do you create and foster authentic relationships between family members and then outside you know uh, very strong friendships with uh, how do, I think that's you know in the whole country i mean this goes back to the whole uh, robert putnam book some years ago bowling alone that it was an epidemic even i don't know how many years ago that came out but uh of, of people just loneliness in america yeah. you know and i think if yeah. if christian communities and families can go big on community and um friendship that that that's one of those things that's um really really important you know and really really a good solution yeah, I completely agree that in our time, we're in Middle Tennessee. And when we got here, it was very clear that that idea of loneliness was one of the biggest things that men in general were dealing with. And, and I'm sure other and women as well. But to, to see so many people in their 30s and 40s be completely lonely and for the guys specifically to not really know how to have those kinds of relationships with other guys was really heartbreaking but it is so rampant it is just crazy and, and this isn't i'm talking really within the context of a church community and um most of it came down to fear in one way or another and the same thing actually when you talked about the parents letting go i i i see that same thing and i feel like a lot of parents including myself we can be afraid of letting go of our kids because there's acknowledgement that it, it may not be what we tried to make it be. We we may have to see things in our kids that we tried to teach them, model, educate certain ways of living life. And we may have to let go and say, and accept that they may not have accepted everything we tried to share with them and teach them. And I think a lot of parents can struggle with the idea. And so there's this almost holding on um, almost not wanting your kid to be exposed to something lest heaven forbid they reject something the parent taught and embrace something they learned somewhere else. And, and while I understand that, I think that as you, you said, this cannot be good sometimes <laughs> this could be because then they don't know actually how to deal with reality. They know how to deal with this sort of insular way of thinking and, and um, seeing things. And then, um, when they are faced with something that they weren't expecting, a lot of times it's, it's a shock and, and it sort of shakes them to their core all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, I mean, Moses, you think of baby Moses, like the, I mean, that, that was a pretty dramatic because he's like, <laughs> I'm going as a baby, but uh, uh, nevertheless, it's kind of a, a precedent, you know, and he, they, they were letting him go to, uh, I mean, he was being raised in Egypt. Which was crazy. Oh yeah, it was just—it was so crazy to think about. <laughs> let's let's send them to the people that are oppressing us, and yeah, yeah. Wow, 
So, okay. That's, that's awesome. So you're, you are then now you're up in Pittsburgh. And then I think you said you, you, you moved back to New York Were all of the moves related to work. They were yeah. jobs things. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I spent 10 years at the wall street journal between basically between 01 and 2011 with okay. a stop at the Washington post and the associated press kind of in that first year as well. But, um, and so, yeah, like my, you know, my career journey was, I, I loved being at the wall street journal and, you know, I, I was transferred a couple of times to different beats, got little promotions, raises, stuff like that. And, and offers to go work in different parts of the world and just loved everything I was learning and doing. And, um, and I thought, frankly, I'd probably spend my whole life there. You know, like some of the colleagues that had done that, I, I kind of saw that was my path. And uh, I think long story short, yeah, I came back to New York because for, it was a longer story, but I turned down a opportunity to go to move abroad. And I realized, okay, I guess I'm in a good space here at the journal. And, and I'm, I was 29 and I had applied for a fellowship at Columbia and uh, in New York and uh, got the fellowship and it's a, it was a sweet gig it's called the night badget fellowship and they give it to 10 business journalists every year and you get a whole year at columbia tuition free at the time and a stipend to live on and oh, wow. that was nice and then um at that time you even got a degree from your year there called a ma- you know a masters from the journalism school and you took class at the business school so it was a really cool deal wow and the crazy thing was I had not at that time, at that point, I had not finished my undergrad degree. I had like one or two classes still. Um, that's a, that's a longer story, but anyway, so I was able to do that program and that's what brought me back to New York. And then in that same year, my company was bought, you know, purchased by Rupert Murdoch at News Corp. And, um, and so a lot of things changed, you know, as, as they do in any corporate merger acquisition or, or acquisition in this case. Mergers are quite rare, you know, that 50-50 yeah. is, you know, often they set a merger, it's not, it's an acquisition. Um, and so, yeah, so I went back, I, I stayed there for a few, three more years, covered GE during the financial crisis. And frankly, I mean, I still liked work, working at the Journal. I was, I was, you know, I don't love living in New York City. And that's kind of what I discovered on my second, my trip back to New York. And so then I, I um, for me, the noise of New York, I live near New York City now, I can actually see it from my house. <laughs> it's like 10 miles away, I can see it midtown and all that. And I go in there two days a week. And I like that. Um, but I but like that's having, close enough. It's close enough. And I've been I've <laughs> yes. been there done that in New York City enough, I get to be there for some events and things. But I don't love the, the, um, the pace of life when you live in the city there, personally, yeah. other people do. So I'm not begrudging them for doing that, you know, for their whole lives or whatever. But I I enjoy being part of the energy, but not being right in it. And so, um, yeah, so that's kind of, I, I knew I, I just wanted to, to like transfer back to a bureau. I kind of just wanted to get out of New York City. And then I, a colleague of mine had done a fellowship in Germany and told me about it. And I looked it up and I'm like, oh, you have to apply to this. It's called a Bosch fellowship. You have to apply to this uh, before, you know, you're 35 or something or 34. And so I was like 33 or 34. So I, I filled out the application had to interview for it was, you know, finalist and everything. And, and I, I received that. And, uh, uh, and so that, that, that appealed to me. Um, I, I was also a little bit burnt out. I think after the, you know, the financial crisis went of 08 to 2011 was so huge as many listeners will remember. And I was covering, you know, a company that was like one of these sort of too big to fail GE 
fine, you know, finance was like this size of a, it was a top 10 Wall Street bank equivalent of 700 billion in assets. It was on death's door. And I'm like, you're going to war every day, just getting information and um, very wearisome few years, basically covering the sort of the economic crisis in the world in America with my, my colleagues at the journal. And I was really kind of burnt out from that. And um, so, yeah, I took this fellowship in Germany and, um, you know, I was on the, on the, on the romantic side, I, you know, was dating and, you know, for me in the, in the Bill Gothard world, you grow up and you're taught about courtship and that was the, the, the modus operandi. And I think I, I sort quite critical of it, I think, because I don't think it's very human. I don't think it's back to that thesis. We or the, the idea we talked about of allowing people to grow up and develop as humans. I just feel like as I look back on sort of the courtship philosophy, there's way too much of sort of denying your own humanity and being full of shame all the time and judged judgment, shame, and what you shouldn't, you know, no, no, no. Um, and, and feeling, yeah, just like guilty if you're talking to a girl. I mean, and I could tell you many stories where it's just, and so uh, uh, yeah. So I think, you know, in my twenties, I was just learning how to date basically, uh, first at college and then kind of in, in the working world. And for me, as someone who I really valued my career, probably I knew I needed to put some miles in the miles on the odometer and career wise and education wise and, and just, and, and going to indie rock shows and watching films and movies and just reading and soaking up and just kind of, I really wanted to, 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 spend time on all that, all of that. And I enjoyed it. And also just kind of having a little bit of freedom to think and do. Um, I feel like I'd worked so hard as a homeschool kid and had to take care of siblings and started working when I was 16, as I think we covered in the previous yep. episode that like, I just didn't know what it was like to be a kid sometimes. So, or to, and, and, you know, I'm sure some homeschool families who might be listening to this will like, well, that's kind of immature. Well, look, I was a pretty, I was a professional at the biggest, most important newspapers in the, in the country. Um, but I was also human and I'd been working as someone as a professional since I was like 15, 16 years old. So I think I, I frankly, um, uh, you know, had I just gotten married, started having kids in my twenties, in my view, I would have maybe been miserable or made other people miserable. And so in, in my case, and also I was moving around for the sake of this career, I dream career I'd gotten into. And so, and traveling a lot. So I really, it was actually kind of hard to sort of be in longer term relationships very long. And also it's, I think I was aware, you know, there were some good things about Gothard, a lot of character stuff, you know, like, and I think just from a discernment standpoint, trying to discern or ascertain, like, you know, one can, one can start dating and get married fairly quickly if you want to, but I think trying to figure out where are their common values, you know, there's many good things about many people in, in this world, but like, where, what are the essentials where, you know, the discernment and just the understanding of like personality and all kinds of things and, and values and um, compatibilities of so many ways. So, so yeah, I think, uh, you know, in, in my case, the, um, I think as I approached like, you know, as I approached my, um, I think as I approached uh, like 30, I started kind of realizing, you know, one has to, in your priorities, if you, if one wants to get, if I want to get married, have children, like I just need to, to 
be more intentional, perhaps, you know, as I was getting into my 30s. And so I don't know, I started, I just think I started trying to like take breaks and not date at times and pray about pray about things. And it just like, I don't know, there's it just felt complicated. It didn't feel like I was ever, you know, uh, I don't know, it just didn't, I couldn't fully, fully figure out how sort of my career trajectory in life, I mean, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent and stuff, I just couldn't figure out how that would match up with sort of the typical sort of Christian idea of family and home and all this stuff and mortgages. And even I'll tell you another thing is that when you grow up poor in a double wide trailer house and a family of nine people um, on poverty level wages and having to figure out your own path to college, no matter if you're making a good wage at a job at a, at a big company, you have as a young man, especially you do have um, you do have a sense of uh, economic instability forever. I think you, it's like someone yeah. who was born in the depression. Yeah. You, you always feel uh you know, got to keep it, you know, it's like prepper mentality or, not, or, or it manifests in different ways, not just prepper mentality, but there's always a sense of everything could be taken away, you know, or, and, and for me, it was, I think also, I think that there was a sense of, uh, I remember once when I first moved to New York, I was dating someone from, a, I met through church, but it was from a wealthy family, went to Ivy League schools. And I remember, uh, you know, we weren't close to getting engaged, but she, the person, she told me that, you know, that she would have to have a $30,000 engagement ring or something. And I was like, in my 20s, I was like, what? You know, and those kinds of things like just blew one's mind, you know, wow. to me. And I was like, I think just the whole idea of the marriage industrial complex and, um, you know, the way wealthier families, middle class or wealthier families might be able to do things just, just didn't feel normal to me. And so, uh, so I think, you know, Long story short, I uh, so I met my current what my wife. Uh, her name is Eleni. We met at a scavenger hunt at Grand Central. I can't remember how much I told this story before, but you, you I uh, literally just mentioned what you just mentioned, which was you oh, met okay. her at a scavenger hunt, and actually you didn't even say it was at Grand Central. So Grand Central Terminal, like New York in Newark. Yeah, Grand Central Station, this beautiful station. train okay. station. So I, I I was giving back to an organization by organizing alumni events for them and okay. called the fund for American studies. And so, you know, I was trying to organize events and get people to come, you know, every couple of months I'd have to organize one. So I found this, I was on a scavenger hunt at the Met museum and that was fun. So I used that. I called that same company and said, Hey, could I plan an event? My friend had planned the one at the Met. So I said, I want to do an event at Grand Central, you know, and let's do this one at Grand Central Station because you go around, look for the mysteries and the, you know, the architecture yeah. and everything. Yeah. And so it was well, fairly well attended and some new people came and I was always, when new people showed up, I was always, I wanted to make sure they had a, a good time and that they felt welcome and would come back. And, and, but uh, yeah, my wife, Eleni and I, we just sort of hit it off and turned out we had a lot in common and, um, you know, she'd gone to Columbia for grad school where I had also gone at different times. She lived in Pittsburgh once. And so we just had a lot to talk about and she and a couple of others, you know, were new. And, and, and so we, I said, would you guys, would you help me plan the next event? And so, um, you know, the story's a little longer than that, but, uh, you know, so we just started, um, we went for a walk to help to plan the next event. And, you know, again, it just, it was very fascinating because I felt like I'd gone so long, just uncertain about which person I was supposed to be with. And, 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 and I'd say 
it was just, you know, in my view, God is sovereign that I think both for Lenny and for me, like all the chaos in our own lives, just kind of clouds kind of, you know, just disappeared. And it was very, it became clear over the course of a few months that like we were supposed to be together. And, you know, we come from different traditions and background. She grew up in New York on Long Island. She, um, you know, her father's uh, Greek uh, doctor who came from an island in Greece and still has an accent. And his story of how he came to America is also pretty wild um, of, you know, he kind of accidental. And um, and so she grew up in the Greek Orthodox tradition. And so, but what what was key overall, though, was that there was a real, from the, from the very beginning, I could just see that there was a, there was commonality, even though we were so different geographically and family backgrounds or whatever, there was also some real commonality of, of, I think, tradition and and values in at the core. And there was an interest, I think, on both of our parts to understand the stuff that was different about us, say from a faith perspective or whatnot, um, uh, that, that was key, you know? And so, yeah, so we, uh, I got, so we were, to, we were dating and then, you know, and, th- and this goes, now this will tie a few things together. So, you know, uh, things that I'd said before during the conversation. So we were dating and and probably thought we'll date for a year or two, you know, two and get engaged and then, you know, then get married and, you know, kind of some kind of normal pathway thing. Um, and I remember I, I ended up realizing, okay, I got this, I got the uh, fellowship offer in Germany from the Bosch, the Bosch uh, program which is pretty competitive, hard to get, you know, it's an interview process, almost like, I'm, you know, not as competitive as a Rhodes scholarship, but it's something, you know, it's like a pretty intense interview process and all that an application process. And um, anyways, so I, I received it. And I remember then I had to figure out, okay, we've been dating for like, I don't know how many months it was at that point. It wasn't a year, but we, uh, I needed to sort of figure out what, what will, what will we do here? And so we went on a long walk and I remember talking and, uh, and, uh, and basically trying to figure out, like, do we do long distance? Do we, um, and and we concluded, you know, we concluded this long walk and conversation by just saying, like, you know, we know we're supposed to be together. Why don't we get engaged? Why don't we get married and just embark on life? You know, and we did. And part of the cool thing about it to me, um, back to the whole wedding industrial complex, was that, um, you know, Eleni, Eleni, was similar to me just said like we don't have to do things a conventional way and right. so we we started deconstructing the same way i think we both were deconstructing our own faith and reconstructing our own faith together and all that we were doing the same with about like marriage and what it means and how we're going to do it and the wedding and all this stuff so we you know we got married we got um we we didn't want to do that at the justice of the peace in new york city we had to do the paperwork there but then my, my father agreed to marry us in a ceremony on long island it was going to be small, but then we started inviting Greek relatives. And the next thing you know, oh, we dear. had a, quite a party. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Whoops. And then, yeah. And then a year later, we had another sort of wedding and party in Greece because we'd moved to Germany. And then we, you know, okay. we had uh, uh, a lot of some friends in, in, in Athens and some of our friends in Europe and stuff came. So we had, you know, and and we were blessed with a child. Then also we were lived in Germany for two years. So we had our first kid while we were there. And that was really great to kind of get away from New York city and just the, and even America just like almost created our own parental European kind of parental leave um, uh, in a different place. And that, that was fun. And yeah. And then, 
I mean, before long, I'm in my, uh, you know, it took me to my, to, from, from thirties to, to, to 40. And I pivoted, you know, career-wise I pivoted to, well, I was in Germany. I was doing a lot of freelance writing and did a fellowship at Der Spiegel and had started a blog, a blog project about education, by the way, like tech and how tech and money were changing education. I did a research project at a university there. I had taught at King's College as an adjunct um, three times, actually, three three different classes over a couple year period. And I really enjoyed it. And I was doing that because I think for a few reasons, I, I was doing it. Uh, Marvin Alasky kind of knew who I, we knew each other a little bit. And so he was provost there and he needed someone to teach journalism. So I, he, you know, asked if I wanted to do that. I, and I was, I said, yes, because I wanted to uh, get teaching experience. Cause I thought one day in my fifties or sixties, I'd become a professor. Um, I'd, and, and so I needed, I knew I needed to figure out how to teach and get that experience. And then two, I thought, you know, it's a Christian college. I don't know what to make of it. And, um, but I'll give it a try. And then, you know, and also I think a sense of give back because I'd had good mentors. So I thought that would be a good way to, to try to try to be a mentor, to try to pay it forward. And so, yeah, I really enjoyed it. In fact, you know, there was some of the students in my first class that I taught um, have gone on to do pretty cool things. And I, and I, I liked their character, like the kind of people they were. So I think some of them probably were homeschooled um, too, by the way. And then um, I kept having good ex- experiences each time I taught there. And then when I go, I moved to Europe for two years. And then when I was coming back, I thought I'd go back into the news business. We wanted to come back because we had a kid, wanted to be closer to my wife's family and all, and back in New York market. And and so I thought I'd go back into the news business. But um, long story short, King's King's College heard I was, you know, kind of coming back and and said, hey, would, could we create a visiting professor uh, role for you for a year? And I said, okay, that sounds kind of interesting. So that that happened and things really kind of flourished and took off and we got, you know, some wonderful grants and things to the point where it was just like, it made no sense for me to do anything else. Um, you know, and, and we, we were in the last 10 years, we've been able to build some, I think really strong journalism programs and help a lot of young people. I mean, hundreds, hundreds, frankly, um, who've come through very different programs have been involved with, um, you know, learn and do and find frankly, some like high level internships and jobs. And I feel like I've you know, definitely been able to kind of pay forward the mentors who invested in me by, you know, many fold. So I think it's been time well spent as my second act um, for the last 10 years now, um, basically from age 35 to 45, really. And the cool thing too, is that like, as when you, you know, one of the things that was a little hard for me at the journal was that, you know, you're kind of, I mean, I shouldn't complain because you're basically, you know, you're covering, you're typically covering a particular beat like metals and mining I did, which was a great beat. I loved it. And if you're doing well at that and you have a good manager, a good editor, you can write feature stories. And so I like doing that. So that's all nice. But, you know, let's say you have a book idea um, or a podcast idea. If you're working at the, at the journal, you know, typically it's very hard to do those other things, you know, and it takes a lot of politicking and maneuvering and so for me the nice thing at in academia is that you deliver in your contract at least in my case I deliver 
classes and the stuff I'm supposed to teach. And then beyond that, there's a lot of freedom. And I really like that freedom. And so I, I have discovered, I, I think I'm a I'm somewhat entrepreneurial and I am I've been, had some success, I don't know, sort of raising grants or funding for different projects, whether it's conferences, um, um, student scholarships. Um, um, uh, you, you know, I've done a few research projects on different topics. I've built a startup as part of one of those research projects. I've done some scholarly research. I've done a lot of freelance writing. I launched a, an online magazine about religion. Um, I lead a nonprofit that that uh, launched that project called religionunplugged.com. We've won a lot of awards, breaking broken big stories. And so for me, it's been a, it's kind of a nice experience to be able to have the freedom to do and um, to do different things that I might have been more limited and not able to do. So uh, that's been, a, you know, a good part of the last 10 years. I, it's funny because when I when I looked up originally some of the things you'd been involved with it doesn't list all those things it lists some of that but that's a lot more that you've been doing than i even realized but it, it's still to me it's fascinating because the trajectory from when you wrote you know 20 something years ago is still the same it's not all the stories were like that and yours is one that was it's just continuing straight on you know into the dream you had and and who knows what's next kind of but i i am curious this is sort of backing up, but I think it connects to some of the other questions I was curious about. In the first in the first episode, you had talked about you know having to to some degree help raise your siblings because there was a big age gap uh, between you and I think some of the 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 kids that came after you. And I think you had mentioned sort of not not connecting to culture as you were growing up, you, you didn't know about a lot of those things as you got into college, I think early on in college, whether it was social references or um, cultural things, whether it was TV shows or music or whatever. Um, it, and it sounds to me like you used your twenties to, to almost go back and re or to experience for the first time things you just never got to growing up in it really sounds like junior high high school Did, am i hearing that correctly oh yeah totally i mean i was like a sponge and i think and and you know i think back on like you know in friendships and even in even dating relationships i remember like different you know that was one thing interesting is each you know every friend you have and you're moving around you're different people with different experiences and interests and stuff like you know, I'm a journalist by training. So you ask questions and you, you know, you learn from people all the time. And so, you know, during at work, I feel like I'm, I'm learning about business all the time when I'm, you know, when I was covering that, or now I'm doing a lot of religion reporting and editing. And so I'm learning about that a lot during, during time I'm working. But the, uh, you know, when you're like dating, it was kind of interesting. I remember at one point I was dating someone who was a, uh, very into jazz music and was a pianist, a classical pianist or something. And so I remember just like, learning a lot about jazz. Yes, right. Right. <laughs> and, and so that, you know, and that's, that's just an, um, yeah, that's, that is a, uh, to me that, that was, that's a good thing to do, you know? Um, but did you, in that process, especially in your twenties, as you were doing this, when I hear somebody say something like that, what, what comes across to me is how did that affect your self-identity? Because, so much of our identity can be established through those experiences and, and, and learning those things or being exposed to those things as we grow up. And you did so much of that in your twenties. Did that 
begin to shape you differently in ways that you didn't expect? Or, or did you have a fairly solid sense of who you were as a human, as an individual, as a man, so that those things were more, it's not that they were, they, they were sort of like little attachments to who you already identified yourself as. And they were just, oh, I like this. I don't like that. I like this. I don't like that. Or, or was there something that came across that you're like, oh my gosh, that really hits me to my core in this area. And I really need to look at this differently. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think the latter, I think I had a, a solid identity as as a person, as a man, and as a, you know, and to, to a large degree as a Christian, but, but it was really just more, um, I'm just trying to think of an analogy. It's almost like having a core there. And then just like, you know, it's like adding different, um, attachments or paint or something right. and, you know, and, and then kind of experimenting. Um, and I, you know, trying to think what were the biggest, and yeah, so I don't think my core identity changed, but if anything, I felt like I want I was shedding though, I was shedding, I was definitely, you know, whatever it was, disentangling or deconstructing outside the core, I think, of shedding ideas that I just that I start started realizing that, you know, might be either ridiculous or limiting or um um. And I, and I think that process started in college too. Uh, uh, you know, what ideas are worth defending as part of one's core identity, and what what what, what ideas are um, are not core? You know, and so like you know, as an example, I mean, um, let's see here. What would be a good example? I think. I mean, I think I gave the one on music. Like, it's not. It was not core to my identity. That one had to listen to hymns and classical only, you know. Um, and I discovered that shedding that, like, you know, I liked, I like some hymns and I like a lot of classical, but exper experiencing, um, you know, everything from, you know, from from uh, jazz to indie rock, and um, and I realized I don't like the old '90s alternative rock is kind of lame. I don't like it. Um, <laughs> my wife likes, you know, punk post new post punk new wave kind of stuff i like okay. some of that but i don't like it the way she does so like yep. it's discovering one's own taste right, I, right. you know i like a little bit of hip-hop and rap but not much um you know so it's like and i think just um uh and so to me that's just that's just simple like exploration yeah. and whereas i think the approach i was raised in was just to like you can't explore you can't right you know you're just limitations and such and so and and it sounds like there was this almost a sense sometimes of it would be immoral to do so. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Or like, you know, even things like Harry Potter or Star Wars or, you know, like Lord of the Rings right. is permissible, but not Star Wars, you know, for, for some people. For, I mean, for like, whatever reason. <laughs> yeah. And so like, you know, maybe one of our parents likes that movie and one doesn't and it's who's, you know. So, yeah, I think th those are just sort of, those are more surface level examples of, I think, what we're talking about. I mean, I think too, there is one thought before we got on the call today that came to mind, which is, and I can't remember if we got into this last conversation. Um, I think a big conflict, a big sort of competing ideas now is, you know, Rod Dreher's idea of the Bene Benedict option and sort of separatism, right? And then um, James D. Hunter's idea of... Um, and, and Abraham Kuyper's idea of faithful presence, 
you know, and how do you live in the modern world and how do you function and what's Christian's role, you know, in the modern world. And I think that goes, that, 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 that applies to one's sort of career action and life in the world. But I think it also applies to one's individual life and one's family life too. And, you know, Benedict Option, as I read that book, the Benedict Option, as I read that book, advocates for, you know, the world's in trouble. And so the like the Benedictine monks, monks living in caves and keeping the scriptures and just avoiding the outside world, that separation and being tight knit and caring for each other is the way to survive the apocalypse or whatever we're encountering in culture and politics or whatever. And, and, and that's, you know, what, what Dreyer and others advocate. And I just, and I think that's kind of what the homeschool community kind of has advocated or in large part advocates advocated and maybe still advocates in places. And it's definitely what I encountered, I think, um, in my family growing up. Uh, and, and, and I don't believe that I don't, I don't subscribe to that. doesn't mean I think I, th I understand it. And I think it's fine for some people to subscribe to it, but for me, it doesn't work for the life I have, um, have had and had and, 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 and enjoy having. And so for me, so what, then what works? And for me, it's the James D Hunter approach. And he's a sociologist at university of Virginia. Um, he's a believer. Uh, can't, I don't, I think he, I can't remember which, you know, if he's Episcopal or Presbyterian or whatnot, but he, I think is credited with coining the term, the culture wars. That was the title of one of his books, but the book that I read in 20, his 2010 book, uh, titled to change the world, um, is really worth a read because I think, you know, his, if I'm accurately summarizing his thesis, the first half of the book explains sociology and how center institutions you know have mattered throughout time and they still matter and and so a lot of times some groups like christian groups or other groups you know try to create they react to the power of the center institution by creating subcultures or doing you know benedict option kind of just being totally trying to um get as far away from the center culture as they can and and center institutions in cultures carry a lot of power, a lot of weight. And so I think sometimes there's a temptation for Christians um, to, to be have an animus toward those center institutions and to do their own thing. And, and he basically says that's not what Christians did in ancient Rome, and that's not what they did in other places. And so, and they do that at their peril. It's a perilous thing to do if Christians largely just like create subcultures and avoid um, center institutions. I mean, he does make a caveat that like sometimes peripheral institutions can play a role and affect the center institutions. So, mm -hmm. you know, and one could say that's true from like, you know, civil rights movement and others where, where people kind of rose up and often they had though, they had backing from center institutions though, that helped them rise up, you know? And so, um, okay. So the second half of the book gets into, okay, what do we do about it? If this is how sociology works. And he basically, as I saw it and read it, and he points toward Kuiper in the idea of faithful presence or common grace that that basically, you know, your life, um, you know, what we do in life matters. And so if we're and so you find your purpose and and our purpose as a as a as a parent is part of it, our purpose in our community is part of it, our purpose, if I'm an accountant or a garbage man or a journalist or whatever I do, if I, I'm doing that to care for my family and in some way to give glory to God and just being faithful in my role um, 
at a center institution or peripheral institution is important. And so, you know, uh, different um, denominations parallel that theology. I think some Presbyterians, you know, parallel that. Even some mainline churches parallel that. It's not that complicated, but I think it's important. And I think that it influences how, like, I do my job as a professor and I think my approach as a parent and my approach to sort of um, church and also like how I see global Christendom. I don't see, I don't see Christianity as, you know, who is the true Christian, the Baptists or the Pentecostals? No, I, I, I try to look at Christianity and Christendom as, you know, um, that the gospel uh, is for everybody. And, you know, billion people in the world are somehow touched some way to identify with that gospel. And, and I don't know all their hearts, but, uh, and there's, but there's potential for many more. And, and so that it's, it's so big and it's so beyond any Baptist and any, you know, Episcopal or any sect or denomination. And, and I want to be part of it. And so, you know, there might be some Catholic or some Orthodox believer who thinks, you know, I'm not their brother, but that doesn't matter. There may be some Baptist who thinks they're not his or her brother, but like, to me, none of that matters. It's it's about, you know, the gospel of Christ and it goes forward. It goes to, to all these peoples and all these places and manifests itself with different theologies. And so I can be part of my church and have my theology, but, but um, that's, that's kind of, my, my, you know, my bigger thought. And I work with people from all over the world with my nonprofit and, um, and, and so we're doing journalism stuff and, and we're not sitting around talking about what, how our theologies differ that much. And so um, I'm interested in creating, I see, I see <clears throat> the bigger divide being um, religious identity and, and those who have religion as part of their identity or not. I see that as actually a bigger conflict in the world rather than the one between um, types of Christians, for example, you know, I, I so uh, and so, and, and so I'm interested in how, how do we create space to make sure we can, you know, religious freedom, freedom of the press, um, the ability for journalists and journalism publications and outlets to, um, cover religion and not just always in a reductionist or conflict manner of conflict. Sometimes we have to do that, but I mean, to, to, to be able to tell stories about religion's place in the world um, it's importance in people's lives. Like that's the, that's the stuff I'm dealing in. And, and I find like, I find I'm able to cross um, denominational boundaries or I barely see them a lot of times, you know, um, or they don't become problems for me. And, and, if, and in fact, you know, I'm able, I have many friends in other faith communities too. And there's a lot of common ground um, that we can find if we look for it, you know, um, if, if I could ask, how did that, how did you work that out with your marriage? Because if she was Greek or Greek Orthodox and you were Presbyterian, I think. I, I uh, yeah. I mean, I, how did you I, guys um, sort I, of bridge that in your marriage? Oh yeah. It was pretty simple. I mean, I think she was a little disillusioned with the Greek Orthodox church, okay. partly some of it's, it's uh, I think some of it's rigidness of like, oh, you got to get dressed up to the nines, you know, for holidays. And, okay. yeah. and, and she's being half uh, Greek, essentially, like her father's Greek, her mom is not, I think sometimes felt that she wasn't fully Greek at some churches, you might feel that. So other Greek churches, yeah. they're very welcoming of anybody. But 
I, so I think she was still culturally Greek and had this, the foundation of, of Greek Orthodox faith in her life, but wasn't quite sure about it, of some parts of that. And so when we met and were dating, I was going to a, a Presbyterian church, uh, PCA, I guess, or similar denomination. And and so she just started coming to my church and, and enjoyed it, enjoyed exploring it. So we went with that for a while. And I was slowly learning a little bit about Greek Orthodox, more of the traditions, really. And um, yeah, and so and that's kind of continued where I think we both feel more comfortable in the Protestant um, sort of the not the low church, but Protestant, I guess we're kind of the mid church Protestant or something. Yeah. And and but meanwhile, you know, our kids, you know, we do celebrate some Greek holidays like Greek Easter. We celebrate the non-Greek Easter and the Greek Easter. And typically and we we have a Greek church that we go to for some events and our kids take Greek uh, language. And oh, wow. and what's cool about it. Yeah. What's really cool about it is I, I love it. I love the people I meet there and the families are wonderful. And, and you know, what's interesting is it's easier for a group like the Greeks or the Ethiopians, some of the Orthodox communities in America to maintain their culture because it's so entwined, like the religion and culture is so entwined and so special. So it's like, you know, it's not offensive. It's not nationalistic for, cause they're a minority population who many people forget have been enslaved. You know, there's been great atrocities done to the Greeks over the years. And so, um, and they're a minority dispersed, population so the church is an incredible place for um connection deep meaningful connection of people and the place we go to it's you know the priest uh, i believe is georgian and it's very welcoming um many of the families are you know one parent is not greek and they're very welcoming of all of us who are not greeks and um you know, and there's just, a, I, I love seeing how it's not just about language. My kids are getting part of their spiritual and Christian heritage is coming from that. And that to me is pretty awesome. You know, and I look at a story like someone like Giannis Attentacumpo. Uh, if you follow basketball, you see Giannis oh, plays for the yeah, Milwaukee yeah. Bucks. Yeah, his story is amazing. I mean, he's yeah. two-time MVP of the NBA, best twice voted best player in the NBA. This guy is Nigerian. His family, you know, move from Nigeria to Greece, living on the streets kind of and and poor and selling trinkets. And part of his story is that, you know, Greece coaches welcomed him, local shops fed them. Um, you know, he played in the pro leagues there. He learned Greek. He went to Orthodox Church. He was confirmed in the Greek Orthodox Church. So he and his brothers, these tall Nigerian guys all have Greek names like Giannis and Thanasi and Kostas. And, you know, he goes to America and he becomes the best player in the whole NBA. And I, you look at the character on that uh, of him and I follow him on Instagram and I'm a fan of his and there's just an incredible sweetness and uh, gratitude. And so, you know, I think that's pretty amazing. Onto the, to, to something you've been talking about, but, but to me, there is a big point. Um, sort of with everything you've been talking about, which is that there can be this tendency of isolation. There can be this tendency to sort of circle your wagon, so to speak, around what you think is safe and familiar and comfortable. And I, I've seen, I've seen people. It's not just a homeschool thing, but I've seen that a lot in the homeschool movement, where there can be this mentality of we're gonna, we're gonna sort of shut out what we're not familiar with or we don't know. We're gonna 
we're going to really hunker down around the things that we do know and the people we know and the um and and having them all kind of be the same and do the same i remember growing up and having that in my um in our church high school group that the homeschool group there was there were two distinct factions well they weren't factions but there were two distinct groups in our high school group there was the homeschool awana and then there was the public school and it and it was so sad that but that was a that was more common than i i think at the time realized that there was this mentality that we're going to sort of be around our own and isolate and um it was in hindsight it was a very sad thing but i hear you talking about that same idea a lot that the church can do that that homeschoolers can do that people can do that in general that um instead of being okay with the world and being okay being around things that you may not agree with but you can still connect to and relate to and learn from and also impact in a very powerful way but if we're not willing to step into those contexts we're never going to impact those people and learn from them either which is kind of sad but i think that's a far more far more rampant issue than than i had realized as i've gotten older yeah yeah, I think uh yeah, I mean I think the the I don't really have much to add really. I I yeah, I think I think it's the uh for the church to grow um in this country to continue growing and serving people. I think it, it has to it has to continue to to welcome, you know, and to to James D. Hunter, follow the James D. Hunter idea, in my view, which is to, um, I think, to also to teach, to to champion. You know, it also relates a little bit to insider and outsider. You know, Jesus. I like my pastor's uh, recent messages. I think in the holiday time about Jesus as the ultimate outsider, and and you know, one of the points in the message was that we're no matter what, how, whenever you think you're an insider, you're not because there's another insider group that's even more insider than yours. And that's true. Um, and so it is a danger to get so obsessed with being an insider. But I also think, and I talked to my pastor about this, that it one also has to be careful of, of championing and, be, and being proud of being an outsider and telling people never to be insiders. Because I think the gospel, um, not just James D. Hunter, but I think the Bible shows us and teaches us too that um, that we are to step up um and stepping up means you know being ambitious in our careers sometimes if you're in, in following your talents your gifts your interests um it means maybe being uncomfortable and welcoming of strangers um listening to ideas that you may not agree with and not having to agree with them but but knowing but not being so scared to just encounter something that's different because you're scared that you're going to change your mind or something i mean yeah. um so yeah, I think I think part of it is is not being so proud to be to be to be an outsider that we become crippled or something in that way. Yeah. If I could, because I've already kept you an hour. I one one final question. I'd be curious. Um, and you had talked very very explicitly about being respectful, and so I I know you'll you'll do that. But I was curious now. How is your relationship with your parents and your your other siblings at this point in life? Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't like on a scale of one to 10, I don't know. Cause it's, you know, there's nine of us. So it's hard to rate, you know, all the, yeah. all the various complications, but I mean, 
I'd say it's fairly good. I, I mean, I think I have a good relationship with my siblings and my parents. You know, I wouldn't say it's the closest, um, mainly because I live far away. And I don't know, we're all kind of busy. And so it's just, I feel like it's it's hard to connect. So yeah. sometimes, and so, you know, we do occasional Zoom calls with the siblings. We do, my some of my brothers and I like to play video games on the phone and chat while we're playing the video games, you know? <laughs> so we try to we try to get together here That's and there. Like... But I, I would say like, I think we as a family and as individuals in the family are still working through a lot of all the kinds of things that we've talked about in, the, in this conversation, conversations we're still working through a lot of stuff and um, I feel great, grateful and fortunate. Um, uh, I think at the place that I'm in with uh, relationships with, with my siblings and and parents and, um, and, and, and I hope, I hope that, you know, my siblings were all at different ages and we're going through different phases of life. And so, you know, I do hope that we could one day have, you know, that we could all be in in, in, in in similar place, but, you know, nothing's guaranteed and we all have to, we all have to work through these, but I do, I do think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's worth the effort to try. It's, it's better than, you know, running away from, from difficult, uh, uh, conversations or difficult, uh, 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 relationships that that are hard to heal sometimes it's worth putting the time in it's worth doing the hard work yeah i, I very much agree and, and i think when you first started sharing your story that was one of the big things i was curious about you know wh where are you now because I, when i hear your story early on it it's easily a story that could that could could really be in shambles at this point you know i think there's it would have been so easy to to see a family just sort of tear itself apart relationally because of the things that it went through or the way that the parents chose to do some things for good or for bad and some of the some of the stories i hear about it doesn't end well and people aren't able to come back and and sort of either reconcile or or just have those honest conversations and say hey this is what i you know happened and I didn't really agree with this, but I know you meant something out of love. I, I know you meant this for my good. And it's okay for me to look back and say, I, I don't have to follow this. I don't have to agree with this. I know you meant it out of love. And it's okay. We can move on. And we can still have a relationship with one another with with having you know some of those things for good or for bad. I, I, I'm not seeing that happen as much as I wish, even in my own life, you know, to be able to go back and sort of say, hey, these are the things that happened. Uh, my, my relationship with my brothers isn't great. We don't have much of a relationship. And that's one thing I, I want to fix. And um, so that's why I'm glad I'm glad to hear that you're in those relationships with them. So, Yeah, and I think sometimes, you know, it's okay to, to create distance, you know, that that's sometimes needed. But, yeah. but it's like, you know, distance can either lead to complete, you know, just drifting apart, or sometimes it can be distance that's helpful to create space to have create right. new boundaries or to create new conversations you know yeah yeah and i think a lot of times we need and this is you know the the, the hot health transplantment idea as i've gotten older has been more uh, powerful to me that you know sometimes we we really need god to literally transplant us from something we were familiar with to something we are not familiar with 
and my wife shared a story with me that I, I thought was so powerful. She, she felt like, um, in, where we used to live in California, she felt living in California that she got this image of herself in a pot with her roots completely being sort of pressured in this little tiny pot. Like they were just being suffocated and that what God wanted to do was pull her out of this pot and transplant her into something grand, something, you know, great and big and beautiful, brand new soil with room for those roots to grow and to be nourished and to thrive. And that had nothing to do with this book. It was just something she shared. I didn't even connect it to the idea of this book until we started the podcast. And, and I think a lot of times that's what God wants to do with us is, is he wants to transplant us. He wants to take us out of something because he knows when we're put into a different context and sometimes with distance, he can do things that allow us to go back and then have restoration. Whereas there would have been no restoration if we hadn't been transplanted, so to speak. So, well, Paul, again, thank you yeah. so much. I, I really appreciate it. It's been so fascinating. Um, it's just been fascinating. I, my brain is sort of swirling because you've said so many things that I really agree with um, and are near and dear to my heart. And, um, but it was just neat to kind of, I feel like you've painted a really neat picture of your life that uh, I appreciate being able to hear that. And um, so it was very meaningful. Hey, well, I, thanks. I, 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 appreciate, I, I appreciate your spirit and your questions. And yeah, it's nice to reflect. It's, you know, both hard and good. But uh, yeah, I appreciate you following up too. It's like, that was a really interesting project then and, and now. So yeah. I'm, yeah. All right. And, and I'll let you know when we get ready to release so you can, uh, you can be aware. Sounds good. All right, Paul, thank you again, <laughs> sir. Care, Have a great day. You too. Bye okay, now. Okay, bye-bye.